0: Hello, and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences. Thank you so much for listening. This is episode 12 of the podcast, and this is the fourth and final part of a series we've been doing titled Deconstructing Lent. And we're looking at spiritual deconstruction through the teachings that are found in the Sermon on the Mount, during this season of Lent that leads us up to Easter. And so if you've been following this series, we've been talking about how the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew in the New Testament of the Christian Bible, how that can give us sort of a roadmap, if you will, for spiritual deconstruction. And I know that a lot of you who are regular listeners to the podcast are here because that's a place where you find yourself, somewhere along what we might describe as a spectrum or a continuum of deconstruction and reconstruction in your spiritual life. So just to lay a little groundwork before we get on with what I want to cover in this episode, I decided actually that the season of Lent was a good time to look at this idea of the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of deconstruction because I really think that's kind of what this season of Lent is really about. And so for people who observe Lent, it's basically the the six weeks that lead up to Easter, and it's intended as a season of reflection and self-examination. And that's basically what deconstruction is, or at least that's maybe where it starts. But if you're not someone who finds yourself in a season of deconstruction, I think it's still helpful to see how the writer of the book of Matthew presents these particular teachings of Jesus in a way that sort of maps out for us not just the deconstruction process, but also how he leads his first followers to, um, to a healthier place of reconstruction. And that's, that's not just about trading one set of beliefs for another one, but it's really a close examination of what Jesus' followers had been taught to believe, why they had been taught to believe it, what was missing in that belief structure, why it was missing, and how to then rebuild it from the ground up Into something more true and more trustworthy than the narrative that they had been given. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, in a nutshell, is to expose the false assumptions on which the Jewish belief system of his time had been built, to strip them down to their most basic functions, and then to reconstruct what he believed was a better way of being. In the world. It's interesting to note, though, through this whole kind of deconstruction and reconstruction project, that Jesus never tells people to quit believing in Yahweh, which was the Hebrew name for God. He never tells them to stop believing in this because what you've always taught about Yahweh isn't exactly correct. But what he does instead is to show them what belief in Yahweh could really mean if it is re centered around this foundational value that he teaches of unconditional and unrestricted love. Now, I I say that because I know for a lot of us when deconstruction hits, it sometimes seems like the most natural thing to do or the most obvious thing to do is to just give up believing in God at all. And, And honestly, I'll grant you that a lot of times the God that we're giving up on believing in is is maybe not really worth believing in. But I often tell people when they tell me that they've stopped believing in God because of some harm or some trauma that they've suffered at the hands of institutional religion or leaders or toxic people, that, that actually I don't believe in that God either. In fact, I'd say that that God is probably not really God at all it's it's more likely some religious construct that we've been fed by particular churches or particular leaders who follow a certain set of what we might call doctrinal convictions, you know, a certain set of beliefs and definitions that are meant more to control people honestly than they are to free people for a, a better life. But I've also found that a lot of folks who have given up on what they've been taught to believe about God are still really interested in this Jesus character. And honestly, when I went through kind of the first waves of my own deconstruction, Jesus was really the only thing that held anything together for me because the more I started to question what I would call my inherited narrative, sort of the faith system that that I had kind of grown up with and been handed, the more I started to question that, the more compelled I became to know more about Jesus. And and for me personally, anyhow, by really leaning into that, I was able to see how much better the real Jesus story was than kind of the religious rule book that I had been handed. And I think that this idea is really beautifully presented in this monologue from Jesus that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, again, deconstructs his first followers' whole worldview so that they can see how much better reality is than the false narratives that they had been fed by their tradition. And so to just kind of recap for a second, and, and I would invite you to go back and listen to episodes 9, 10, and 11 to get the first three parts of this series if you haven't already listened to those, Jesus has kind of invited people to radically reorient their lives around a new way of being that he calls the kingdom of heaven, which was a very Jewish way of saying the way that God intends for life to be. He has recentered them on their God-given identity as beloved children of the divine. He has exposed their religious leaders' hypocrisy. He has debunked the misinterpretation of their law, the Torah, which was their unifying narrative. And he has brought them to the understanding that each person, and all things for that matter, are imbued with the inherent dignity and worth that the God who created them all in the likeness and image of perfect love has given them. And he has taught them that there is nothing they can do to make themselves either more or less worthy of receiving God's love, which he essentially defines as participating in life to the fullest. And so that's where we left off in our last episode at the end of Matthew chapter 6 and what Jesus is doing through this whole speech this monologue this sermon is encouraging his followers to strip away everything that's built around pride or selfishness or power dynamics or greed or self-importance and just to simply be to to become who it was that they were always meant to be. In his book, Immortal Diamond, uh, the Franciscan friar Richard Rohr talks about this concept of letting go of the false self in order to, in, in his words, to fall into the true self, right? So it's it's sort of like it's once we strip away the, the false layers, we, we actually find what's true behind all of that. And, and basically, that just means what we're talking about here, right? To, to let go of all of the trappings of ego, or, or in Rohr's language, to let those things die so that we can embrace the true self that is already filled with the love that is God. So, we pick up here in Matthew 7, where Jesus has just finished talking about How futile it is to to worry about the things that are out of our control and how, in a sense, our worry is really just a way of trying to control and manipulate a God who is beyond control and manipulation. And I should note here that that Matthew 7 that we're going to unpack in this episode probably has more little snippets and quotes that get pulled out of context than maybe any other single chapter of the Bible, and we're going to talk about a few of those as we go forward here. Because as we discussed last time, Jesus has moved from deconstruction to reconstruction, and he's now going to start laying out some of the practical advice for what it looks like to live a reconstructed life. And so, unfortunately, what happens when we get practical advice is that we often take it out of its original context. So again, we're going to look at some of those things going forward here in this episode. So chapter 7 picks up with, with this passage about judgment that basically says, don't judge others unless you want to be judged yourself. And it talks about how you shouldn't criticize the splinter in someone else's eye or the speck in someone else's eye, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading when you basically have a log or a plank in your own eye. Now, a lot of commentators have noted that what Jesus is probably doing with that metaphor about splinters and logs or specks and planks, again, depending on what you're reading, it's intended as a bit of kind of sarcastic hyperbole. And I tend to agree that that's probably true. It does conjure up, right, a rather sort of ridiculous image And it it seems to me, anyhow, that that's how Jesus intends it. But I think a lot of times we miss the point of what Jesus is doing with that phrase, with that bit of sarcastic hyperbole. Most of the time, I think people read that as saying that you shouldn't criticize other people's shortcomings or wrongdoings as long as you yourself have your own shortcomings or wrongdoings. But remember, again, the bigger context that we're operating in here. Jesus is not just addressing individual behaviors. He's talking about, going all the way back to chapter 5, he's talking about the attitudes and the motivations that we have, the underlying things that lead us to mistreating other people, to harmful behaviors towards others. The American philosopher Dallas Willard in his brilliant book, The Divine Conspiracy, which, honestly, for me, anyhow, has been probably the best commentary I've ever read on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and really is it's my primary source of material for just about all of this series. Willard suggests that the log, or the plank in this metaphor, is not our sins or our personal behaviors, but rather it's this larger tendency that we have to condemn other people who are different than us, who think differently, act differently, behave differ- differently than we do, right? So what, what Jesus is saying is not so much that we don't have a right to criticize other people's actions when we're doing things that are just as bad, but he's saying that we're so blinded by our self-centeredness that we condemn whole people or whole groups of people rather then what might be, you know, an appropriately helpful critique of a certain behavior. And then he follows that up with this really strange comment about how you can't give sacred things to dogs or throw pearls to pigs. And it's the strangest sounding little phrase. And on the surface, it's it sounds like just about the most bizarre thing to say in that instance. It seems like it's totally out of place, which is probably why it's, it's one of those things, it's one of those little quotes in Matthew 7 that so often gets decontextualized when people try to interpret it. So so most of the time you might hear that what that phrase means is that some people are just not worthy to receive the, you know, quote, good news or the gospel of Jesus, or that they're just never going to be willing to receive it. And so we really just shouldn't waste our breath or our time on them. And I think we get that notion from this idea that that dogs and pigs would have been considered unclean animals in early Hebrew thought, and so associating with dogs or pigs would make you unclean as well. But as Willard says, the problem isn't that pigs and dogs aren't worthy, it's just that the things that Jesus is talking about giving them are unhelpful. Dogs can't eat holy relics. Pigs can't digest pearls. It's it's another extremely hyperbolic image. Now, remember, this is all in the context of this this whole bit about judgment and condemnation. Jesus isn't suddenly shifting gears to say, you know, on the one hand, that we shouldn't condemn others, and then slips in this idea that, oh, by the way, there are just some heathens out there that will never believe the gospel, right? Right. I think what he's saying is that our judgment, our condemnation, is simply not helpful to the people that we aim to judge or to condemn. It's not going to change them. Think about it for a minute in in modern terms, right? Have you ever seen anyone's mind changed by an argument that they had on Facebook? Of course not, right? I I remember I had this classmate in seminary once who said, Nobody ever believed in Jesus because they lost an argument. But how many of us in the midst of our deconstruction have been prodded and cajoled and criticized by religious people who, who want to argue us into believing you know, exactly what they believe? It, it just doesn't work. It's, it's an affront to our dignity and our autonomy. It all comes back to this idea of control and manipulation. At Accidental Tomatoes, we're building a community of people looking for ways to find faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences of the traditional church. While our blog and our podcast are always absolutely free, if you'd like to go deeper with more resources and conversations, we invite you to support us through the Patreon platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can receive bonus content including a monthly newsletter, patrons-only commentary, and much, much more. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn how. And now, back to the podcast. So Jesus moves on from that statement about dogs and pigs to to say this. He says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. And then he goes into this bit about giving people stones instead of bread and snakes instead of fish. And again, we've largely completely lifted that passage out of its larger context to try to make it into a formula about how we're supposed to get the things that we want from God. But the problem is, that is not at all what Jesus is in the middle of talking about. So what is he saying? Again, I think... Keeping everything in context, if if we follow the narrative thread that the author of Matthew gives us, we can see that what Jesus essentially is saying here is something that might be more along the lines of something like this. Look, you're judging and condemning someone to get them to think and act the way you want them to think and act will never work. But maybe if you can step away from judgment and condemnation for a minute and try to extend some respect for that person's inherent human dignity, you might be able to understand and maybe even find some common ground. So instead of condemnation, how about some conversation? Ask them why they think the way they do or why they do the things they do. Seek to understand their perspective and their motivations. Knock on the door and give them the opportunity to extend some hospitality to you. Would I give you a stone if you asked me for bread? Would I give you a snake if you asked me for fish? Of course not. Right? So that might be another way to read that little passage there at the beginning of Matthew 7. And then Jesus wraps all of that up, um, this whole little subsection with, with another one of Christianity's favorite pithy little bumper sticker sayings, the one that we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. And and honestly, since I really personally just don't have much use for that old kind of King Jamesy language, we might say it more like, just treat other people the way you want to be treated. That's what this whole story is actually about. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there, right? And that's, we pull this thing out of context to make our nice, you know, little quotable quote, but we miss the fact that Jesus goes on from there, right? Because he wants people to know that he understands that the simplicity of this whole concept is what makes it really difficult. And so once again, he says something that is almost universally misused and misinterpreted in our sermons and our Bible studies. And so I'm, I'm going to read directly now um, this next little bit from the Common English Bible Translation. It says Go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road is wide, so many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road is difficult, so few people find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you dressed like sheep, but inside they are vicious wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Do people get bunches of grapes from thorny weeds, or do they get figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, and every rotten tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a rotten tree can't produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you will know them by their fruit. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of Yahweh will enter. On judgment day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and expel demons in your name and do lots of miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them, I've never known you. Get away from me, you people who do wrong. Now, I'm willing to bet dollars for donuts, as we say here in Appalachia, that if you've ever heard this message preached on or taught before, it's been used to say that only Christians get to heaven, that the secular world is trying to eat you alive, and that there are a bunch of liberal false teachers out there who are trying to lead you astray. And so I'm just going to go ahead and call BS on that right now. Because this is another one of those passages that gets ripped out of the whole flow that the writer is presenting in order to serve the agenda of a brand of Christianity that is actually itself probably more in line with what Jesus is really critiquing here. Jesus is not saying that you have to obey church doctrine to get to heaven when you die. He's not saying that people who interpret particular doctrines differently than your specific denomination or tradition interprets them are dangerous false teachers who are going to regret their heresy come judgment day. Again, we have to remember the context. What is it that Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about mutual dignity, respect, compassion, justice, mercy, the common good over individual good things that the Apostle Paul in one of his letters refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying that he knows this will be hard. In fact, it will be harder than just following along with your religious tradition. That's what he means by this this whole idea of the narrow gate and the wide gate. Parenthetically, by the way, we can't interpret Jesus' speech to a group of faithful religious Jews as having anything to do with secularism the way we know it today. That wasn't even a concept that they would have had a category for. So he says that your religious leaders will try to convince you otherwise because they benefit from the status quo, the systems and structures of oppression and marginalization and condemnation of others. But where's the fruit in that, he asks? Where is the evidence that people actually live better, more fulfilling lives because of that way of thinking. He says that even if those people recognize his authority, which we're going to get to here in a minute, that they can they can use his name to promote their agenda till they're blue in the face. But that doesn't get them any closer to the kind of life that Jesus is advocating for here. You see, When we allow these things to exist in the larger context that the writer is presenting, we can't come to those other kinds of conclusions about Christian exclusivity. It's just not intellectually honest. It has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. And I think the writer of Matthew reinforces that with the last statement that Jesus makes at the very end of chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it has to do with people who hear his words and follow them being like a wise person who built a house on the rocks instead of like the foolish person who builds a house on sand because the house on the rock can withstand wind and rain and floods while the house on sand will be destroyed. And to me, that just says, you know, what's your, what's your foundation? What are you building your worldview on? Are you going to build it on religious doctrine and tradition and systems and structures that dehumanize and objectify and exclude the people who don't act and think and believe like you do? Or are you going to build it on trust in a God who is love and who creates out of love and whose creations bear love as the very core of their being, a God who sees everyone and everything in the full beauty and worth and dignity that comes with being creations of love, by love, and for love. And then the writer of Matthew ends this whole passage, this whole sermon, with this statement. He says, When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching." because he was teaching them like someone with authority and not like their legal and religious experts. I think for me, this whole realization of what's really going on in the Sermon on the Mount might have been one of, if not the single biggest factors in helping me reconstruct around the Jesus story rather than just abandoning a belief in God um, kind of at the maybe the apex of my deconstruction. It wasn't that I couldn't believe God was real. It was just that I had to learn to see that the way God had been presented to me was not consistent with the nature of the God who is presented through the person of Jesus of Nazareth and these things that he taught his followers on a hillside in Galilee a couple thousand years ago. And once I was able to kind of make Jesus my lens for understanding or maybe more accurately for knowing God instead of religious doctrine or or even the Bible itself, and, and for more on that concept, I'd highly recommend listening to Pete Enns and Jared Bias's The Bible for Normal People podcast. Um, not a sponsor, by the way, but Pete and Jared, if you're listening, I'd, I'd sure be open to that. But, but once I, once I kind of was able to make Jesus that lens, I was able to see that I could pretty easily shed my old worldview in favor of a better one built around this narrative that Jesus presents. And, and and I'd argue that that is a worldview um, or, or, or um, a kind of a foundation that is more authentic and, and honestly, even more biblical if you want to go that far. In fact, I think I would go as far as to say that because I believe that that this passage that we call the Sermon on the Mount is really the synopsis or at least sort of the climax of all of Jesus' teaching, it has really become for me kind of the lens through which I now view all of the rest of the Bible. And, and because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' way of reinterpreting, again, of deconstructing and reconstructing Israel's belief system about God, I think it's a pretty good framework from which we can better understand all the rest of the biblical narrative. We all read things through a certain perspective, right? We all interpret things through a certain lens, right? In, in theology, we call that our hermeneutic, right? So, so this has become kind of my hermeneutic, and I, and I find that it's really a more helpful way of, of understanding and knowing God, right? How, best, how can we best understand God? Through Jesus. How can we best understand what Jesus believed about God? I believe we can do that primarily through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus flips the traditional narrative and tells the people who choose to follow him a better story. And I think a lot of us who find ourselves somewhere in that spectrum of deconstruction and reconstruction really need that better story in our lives right now. So so that's it. That's all we have for episode 12 here of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. And that brings us to the end of our series on deconstructing Lent. Thanks again for listening, and and again, if you haven't caught the first three parts of this series, I invite you to download episodes 9, 10, and 11 to kind of get the whole thing in in the whole big picture. As always, you can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com, and across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages for up-to-the-minute updates of what's going on in our community. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebwrites.com, where I've actually been blogging through the Sermon on the Mount during Lent as well, and so you can kind of see maybe a little bit different perspective there. And then on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I'm at joewebwrites. If you have ideas or suggestions for future podcast topics, I would absolutely love to hear from you. And you can contact us, again, on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I would I would ask you to please be sure to, to give us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcasts, that will help other people find us and connect with our community and participate in this conversation. So keep on growing Outside the Fences and join us next time for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.